This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Question, could New Zealand become part of Australia? Sounds like a very strange idea. Would it surprise you, though, if I told you that a Kiwi politician has actually suggested it? And not only that, there is actually a part of our constitution in Australia that gives New Zealand an open invitation to become an Australian state in the future. So maybe it is not that wild after all. Later, we're going to be getting into this concept, what it would mean, how it would work, if there would be any real benefits to the idea. That's coming up later. We're also checking in on Australia's biggest inquest into domestic violence, which is underway in the Northern Territory. First, though. Hack. I no more think of myself as being as old as I am than fly. On Triple J. How old is too old to be a politician? 70, 80, 90? Maybe you don't think there should be an age limit at all. Because you would have seen the stuff kicking around on social media about older political leaders. You know, mainly in the US, whether it's US President Joe Biden, 80 years old, Donald Trump, 77. There's also been a lot of talk about the oldest serving senator in America who's 90 years old. There are questions about their ability to do the job or just generally whether they should be making important decisions for future generations. What do you think? Message in 043975755. Our reporter, Miles Holbrook-Walk's been looking into this and what the situation is here in Australia. And he's actually spoken with our oldest federal MP. And as you're going to hear, they've got some pretty controversial opinions, not about older politicians, but about younger ones. How old is too old? No, 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 not in love and relationships, but in politics. There's a discussion taking place in the US at the moment about whether politicians well into their late 70s and even 80s should be in very senior positions of power. Yeah, I just think Joe Biden's too old, man. Why are American politicians so old? How is there not a maximum age to be president? Now, if there is an age requirement to run for office, we should definitely have age limits because an 89-year-old in office is problematic. So what about here? We've got two politicians in their 20s and seven in their 70s. But by the time the next federal election rolls around, there could be zero in their 20s and 12 in their 70s. So is there an argument for having age limits for politicians? Well, I want to tell you about an industry that already has this, the legal system for judges. The fourth question concerns the retiring age of federal judges to be appointed in the future. We believe that after the age of 70, it's only fair and reasonable that responsibility should be handed on to younger people. And this is especially important. A yes vote will make this possible. Back in 1977, literally one of the only referendums to be successful in this country was to enforce a retirement age for judges at a federal level for 70 years old. Eight out of 10 people in the country voted in favour of it. It's quite ageist and saying, it's like law tells you that you're no longer capable of doing your job just because you've had that many birthdays. That's Rebecca Ananian-Welsh. She's an associate professor of constitutional law and argues a mental fitness test would be better rather than just an age limit. If you've got an independent judicial that the judges respect and can just do those tests, 
that's the kind of thing that might actually boost the reputation of the judiciary. She reckons it's better to keep discussions around whether someone is too old or too young in the hands of voters, not the law. Forcing people to retire while they're still being elected may not be the answer. It seems like a drastic kind of response. Run For It are a grassroots group and they reckon right now politics is failing young people. It's really hard for young people to be represented in the current system when we don't have that electoral representation of young politicians because currently the older people who are meant to represent us aren't listening to us. But April Tucker, who coordinates their volunteers, doesn't think we need a retirement age. We probably wouldn't be in support of putting an age cap on people who can be politicians just because at this point in our democracy, we think it's more important to be expanding who has participation in our democracy. If anything, they want to see more people included in politics, not fewer. Rather than just seeing young people as like volunteers or campaigners on their campaign, they can back these young people and say, hey, we want you to actually be representing communities and, I don't know, having civics education workshops in schools. They can back the idea to lower the voting age. The oldest politician in federal parliament does have some views on age limits. I absolutely believe there should. I don't think anyone under 36 should be allowed into parliament. Every year, every day of your life, you should accrue wisdom. When you get to my age, you should have accrued a damn lot of wisdom. Meet Bob Catter. Well, no doubt some of you already know who this guy is. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it because in the meantime, Every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. He's 78 years old and could be 80 at the next election. If you think he's about to give it away, well, guess again. I had no right to retire from the battlefield. I mean, heavens, I'm bloody good swordsman. Or I just walk away from it, do I? What a hide you got, you know? Nice little pension. You can sit and watch television every night. Well, I don't think that Jesus would be very pleased. When I go to meet my maker, if I'd taken that turn. And if there are young people looking to take on Bob for his seat, he's fired off this warning. I loved the last election because I wanted to wipe the noses of my so-called opposition where they belonged. And I enjoyed belting the living daylights out of them throughout the entire election campaign. Hack on Triple J. Ah, Bob Catter there, our oldest politician in federal parliament. Some big statements, as always. He's not worried about politicians being too old. He's worried about them being too young. Not under 36, he says. What do you think of that? It's a story that's kicking off on Hack's Instagram. Sarah says Bob Catter was first elected in 1974 when he was 29. (laughs) Good point. That was in state politics, not federal parliament, but very good point there. Leighton, 20 years old, says, No offence, but old politicians should get out. It's the younger generation who will run the future. We may not have the greatest knowledge, but the boomers are the reason we young people are cleaning up the mess. Well, hey, let's get into this a bit more with someone who's done a lot of research into age and politics. Axel Sundström is an associate professor at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, and he's with us now. Axel, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Is age in politics becoming a bigger issue around the world? Like, are politicians getting older? Well, I certainly think this topic is getting salient. If you ask voters, this is a big problem. And I I think it's important to note that 
we might not see the presence of some older politicians as a problem per se, but I rather think it is a problem that youth are largely absent. So, well, in most countries, there are very few young adults in parliament, and, and that is significant. Uh, that has an impact on which policies that are enacted in Parliament. So if there are more young people than ever before in the world, why is it that there's this huge problem with underrepresentation of younger people? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I think the system is uh, flawed in some sense. I mean, we have huge variation across countries, of course. But in many countries, it's really difficult for young adults to rise in politics. So politics is essentially quite excluded. It excludes outsiders. So we know that women, people from ethnic minority groups, um, people with not so much economic resources, they, they, are, they have difficulties entering politics. And this is also the case for younger adults. So in many systems, um, the institutions as such favor older people. So you might have countries where there's an age cap in whether or not you're allowed to run. So that's an institutional hurdle. And there's also other aspects across countries. I'm just going to read some messages from our listeners. Somebody says, I don't think there should be an age limit, but why not a competency test yearly for all politicians? We need younger people. If younger people don't have a say through their 20s, how can we ensure a society worth living in through our 30s? That's some person's comment there. Another person says we have a real problem with career politicians in this country. Most don't know when to call it quits. But then someone else says, I think that if they are good quality politicians, then we should keep them as long as we can. We need some good politicians serving in Parliament now. That was from Trent in Geelong. I'm speaking with Axel Sundström, an Associate Professor at the University of Gotham who's looked into this issue about younger people around the world being underrepresented in parliaments, in politics. What's the solution here, Axel? Because you spoke with a lot of people in your research. You've even spoken with former leaders, prime ministers. Well, that's correct. And, and I think it's really important to point out that we have some prominent leaders that were quite young when they entered office. Think about New Zealand's uh, Jacinda Ardern. I think she was in her late 20s when entering parliament. Or just a recent Finnish prime minister, Sanna Marin. She was actually 34 years when taking office. So many of these leaders, they were actually quite young. So I, I would really like to point to the trend that we're seeing. Uh, leaders are getting older, however, in parliaments across the globe. And we can see that in countries where it's really old average age, they tend to have systems that benefit the insiders. So really, I think one point of reform would be to institute maybe hurdles um, for people to sit in many terms. So term limits would be one example, I think, of an institutional reform. I think electoral systems are there to stay, so that would likely not be <laughs> something that... Uh, leaders are willing to negotiate. Do you think this is going to continue to become a much bigger issue? And uh, do you think people will start voting around this issue specifically around the world, whether it's in the US or whether it's in Australia, whether it's in Sweden? Well, I think climate changes will definitely point the finger to this problem. Uh, for many voters, younger voters, it doesn't really make sense to have people making decisions uh, if they're not sticking around for 20 years or so more. So I think this will be even more salient. And 
I think it's important to remember that we have a potential vicious cycle here that political parties in many countries, they actually target older voters because they know that this segment of the population is much more likely to cast a vote on election day. And this makes younger voters then realize that they, their voice is not equally interested and they might refrain from participating. So this might cause like a vicious cycle where young young people are not at interested in formal politics. So I think this is a huge problem, actually. Yeah, especially around the world where there's perhaps not compulsory voting like there is in Australia. I mean, one of the interesting exactly. things, I think, about your research, Axel, is you talked to the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Helen Clark, and she had an interesting point because she kind of changed her perspective, didn't she? Yeah, exactly. I think viewing politics as being about wisdom isn't really the only thing we should keep in mind. Remember that many see politics as a struggle, as something about change and reform. So maybe you want to have people in parliament that are going for reform and want to change. So maybe having outsiders is giving that change. And I think voters are actually asking for change in many contexts. We'll definitely appreciate all of your knowledge in this area. Very extensive research you've done. Associate Professor Axel Sundström from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. Thank you very much you. for your time on Hack. No, I appreciate it. And we've got more messages coming through. Someone says, it's interesting how in the US presidents can only serve for eight years regardless of age. However, senators can serve indefinitely. Aren't they all politicians? Shouldn't they be held to the same standard? Another person says, Australia's a democracy. Let the system allow for the people to decide who is elected. Someone else says, give me a break. The argument is like saying children should run their family because parents are too old. <laughs> Not sure it's the same as that. They say, to be part of the running the country, you should have a certain amount of life experience and perspective. It's fundamental. That's someone's opinion there. And the other person says, uh, from, you know, a scientific perspective, the brain deteriorates at very different pace for everyone. It would be unethical and unfair to try and set one age bracket that eliminates a lot of people from getting involved in politics. It's a big issue and one that no doubt we're going to be talking about for years and years to come. Time to move on. Hack. Indigenous women are being killed by their partners almost 13 times the rate of non-Indigenous women. On Triple J. Yeah, just a warning, we're about to speak about domestic violence because you may not have heard much about it, but for the past few months, Australia's biggest coronial inquest into domestic violence has been underway in the Northern Territory. It's actually a few different inquests that are looking into the deaths of Aboriginal women killed by their partners. And what's been heard so far has been really confronting. Evidence of DV services that aren't funded properly, not enough training for first responders... It's heavy. Let's find out more. ABC reporter Melissa McKay is covering this and she's with us now. Hey Mel, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey Dave, anytime. Can you explain what these inquests are about and why they were set up? Yeah, so this is a series of uh, coronial inquests that the Northern Territory coroner has opened this year. So she's looking at the deaths of four different women who were all killed in very different circumstances. They all had very different lives. They grew up across the top end in central Australia. But they've all had some really tragic similarities in their circumstances. Each of these women were killed by their partners. Each of them had a history 
of being victim survivors of domestic violence. Each of their partners had a history of violence against them or other women. And so the Northern Territory coroner is looking um, quite broadly at the Northern Territory's domestic violence response and how it is that women continue to be victims of domestic and family violence at rates far higher than anywhere else in the country. We've heard some really, really shocking statistics over the last couple of months, and I feel like I've been repeating them constantly uh, in my coverage, but I think they really just drive home how big of an issue this is. We know that the rate of domestic violence related homicide in the Northern Territory is seven times that of the national average. Aboriginal women are being killed at almost 13 times the rate of non-Indigenous women. And we also know that in the past 10 years, the Northern Territory Police have recorded an increase of 117% in domestic violence related calls. But almost Worse than that is that over the next 10 years, their projection is that that's going to continue to increase by another 73%. So we're hearing just some really horrific statistics to back up the really awful stories uh, of women and families that we have been hearing about in court over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, those statistics are so confronting to hear. And I mean, you've also been hearing beyond the numbers, the very personal stories behind these statistics. What have been some of the bigger things, the really intense evidence that stood out during these inquests? Yeah, we've heard some really horrifying stories, as you say, that, you know, go beyond the numbers, you know, these are really personal stories of women. And a lot of, I think, some of the most shocking evidence that we've been hearing for legal reasons we, we can't report on, a lot of the the biggest strengths of some of these women we haven't been able to report on, some of the most difficult aspects of their lives. But what we're getting is this, this overwhelming sense of a system that is so overburdened by domestic and family violence reports and is so uh, underfunded and unable to respond in the ways um, that these women deserve. We've heard the very first inquest um, that was held back in June, the death of Miss Hay- of uh, Miss Haywood uh, at a town camp just outside of Alice Springs. She had been suffering at the hands of her partner for years and years. She had sent a text message on the night that she was killed to a loved one Uh, essentially foreshadowing her own death, telling this person uh, that she felt like her partner was going to kill her tonight. And he did. She she was locked. uh, She locked herself in a bathroom inside of a house uh, while he set the place on fire. You know, and this is really, really shocking stories that, that are happening to women and aren't necessarily catching headlines across the country. You know, and so these are some really horrific stories and we know that these are just the ones that get reported to the police. You know, we know that there are so many instances of domestic and family violence uh, that these women and other women have suffered that aren't coming to light because there are hesitations in reporting this sort of stuff to police. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ABC reporter Melissa McKay, who has been covering these inquests into domestic violence in the Northern Territory over the past few months. Mel, what happens now? Is it all wrapping up soon? And what are going to be the next steps from here? Yes and no. Um, In a sense, we are sitting uh, this week in Alice Springs for the final 
the final of the four coronial inquests. We're looking um, this week at the death of Command Rabunja, who was killed by her partner Malcolm Abbott in the car park of the Alice Springs Hospital a couple of years ago. When this inquest wraps up on Friday, the coroner will then adjourn for another little while and will come back at the end of October for another two weeks of expert evidence and institutional responses. So in that time, we're going to hear from experts about, you know, suggested recommendations. We'll hear from entities like police about what changes they have already implemented when it comes to their response to domestic and family violence. Uh, And then at the end of that, so by sort of mid-November, the coroner will go away again um, and she'll write her findings and recommendations around each of these women's deaths. So there is still a little way to go, but as you as you said at the beginning, this is one of the biggest inquests into domestic and family violence that, that we've seen across the country. Well, we'll definitely be checking in later in the year. We do appreciate your coverage of this smell. Thank you very much, ABC reporter Melissa McKay. Thanks for keeping us across it. Anytime. Thank you. And on the text line, someone says, this is just dreadful to hear. I'm shocked to the core. Remember, if any of this has raised issues for you, Lifeline's always there. You can get them on 13 11 14 or the National Sexual Assault Family and Domestic Violence Counselling Service is always available as well. 1-800-RESPECT. Hi. Every time I visit Australia, I often ponder the thought, will we ever become one country? My personal view is that New Zealanders shouldn't rule that out. On Triple Jack. Did you know New Zealand could have been a state of Australia? Really, in our constitution, we've actually left the door open to this. Imagine that. What would it be like? And how would it work? Because as you just heard... An MP in New Zealand, a retiring MP, has raised this idea in his final speech to Parliament. And maybe you're thinking, oh, that'll never happen. But could it? What if it did? Someone who's been looking into this is Dominic O'Sullivan. He's a professor of political science at Charles Sturt University. And he's with us now. Dominic, thanks for coming on Hack. Yeah, g'day. Why didn't New Zealand become a state of Australia back at Federation? Was that actually something that was being considered? Because I didn't know that. Yeah, it was considered. Uh, New Zealand particip- participated in the constitutional conventions in the 1890s. And that's why when the British Parliament drafted up the Act that's become the Australian Constitution, New Zealand was uh, mentioned in there as a, a potential uh, member of the Commonwealth. And that didn't happen, I guess, because although the relationship was was very close. Uh, it wasn't quite close enough, and there were, I guess, reasons for New Zealand wanting to uh, develop as an independent colony. And uh, over time, those similarities and differences have um, changed a little bit, and I think that's why, even though the idea has been raised as, as recently as 2006, um, it's not happened. And in 2006, an Australian Parliamentary Select Committee actually recommended it. And um, the New Zealand Prime Minister said no. And the leader of the opposition said, oh, we should talk about it. But nobody wanted to talk to him. (laughs) So uh, that's where we're at. And I don't think this is going to make Jamie Strange, the retiring uh, Member of Parliament who's raised it again, uh, terribly famous or... um, allow him to leave Parliament with a great legacy. But it's an interesting idea, I think, because it requires us to think about 
what makes us different and what makes us similar, what makes us who we are. And, and that's a good thing to think about from time to time. It's definitely interesting to know that Australia has been super keen on the idea in the past, but NZ saying, no, hold up, we're, we're okay as we are. Someone on our text line says, if New Zealand's going to become part of Australia, can it happen before the start of the Rugby World Cup so we've got a chance? That was someone there. How would it work, Dominic? Like, would New Zealand be given senators in our parliament? Would we combine our defence forces? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the parliament in, in Wellington would become uh, a state parliament, so it would have the same uh, responsibilities and powers as the Parliament of Victoria or New South Wales, for example. And then all those things that the Commonwealth Parliament does for Victorians and for Victoria would be done for New Zealand by the parliament in Canberra. And obviously New Zealand would have representation in the parliament and that would probably mean a, a bigger house of representatives. Um, a, a combined Australia-New Zealand population would be about 30 million. So on a population basis, that would give um, uh, New Zealand about one-sixth of the seats in the um, House of Representatives and um, probably 12 senators. The Constitution, I think, gives 12 senators or an equal number of senators to the founding states um, but I think that has to be negotiated um, for new states. But, I mean, New Zealand would um, not be interested on, on terms that, you know, gave it a, a, a lesser presence than in Tasmania or South Australia, for example. Yeah, I don't imagine so. We've got so many messages coming through on this. Someone says, leave New Zealand alone. They don't want to become Australian. One of the things that makes NZ so attractive as a travel destination is because it's not Australia. Another person says, Australia should just become a state of New Zealand. They're also nice and talented. That was from James. Dominic, one of the biggest issues would be the representation, the recognition of First Peoples, because Australia and New Zealand have handled this very differently historically. Is that a big issue that's been raised in the past? Yeah, and I think that in itself would would stop this happening, Um, other other arguments aside. And and I think the the voice debate that's going on in Australia at the moment is... um, it really illustrates the, uh, the, the differences. Yeah, we're talking in Australia about a voice to parliament. In New Zealand, there's a Māori voice in parliament. And um, the New Zealand parliament has 120 members at the moment. About half are elected from party lists and the other half are elected from geographic constituencies, just like they are in Australia. And about 10% of those constituencies uh, are designated for Māori voters. So Māori voters would expect, I would imagine, uh, guaranteed seats in the parliament in Canberra. And then that raises the question, obviously, um, what about the Indigenous peoples of the um, uh, continent of Australia and, and, and Tasmania? Um, you know, we, we can't treat them differently. Um, and given Australia is struggling a little bit at the at the moment with the idea of a voice to Parliament, I think it would struggle a little more with the idea of a voice in Parliament. And there's also the, the, the Treaty of Waitangi, um, which allowed British settlement to occur um, in, in, in New Zealand from, from 1840. And 
that that agreement really sets out quite clearly um, some constraints on the powers of government um, because Māori are entitled to authority over their own affairs. And they're also entitled under the, this treaty to distinctive participation in in the state and government and so on. And that's really what the voice debate is about. And, and, and the point that really seems to be dividing the yes and no camps is whether we want or whether we don't want distinctive participation in public life. And um, that, that distinctive participation is so well developed in New Zealand um, that it's not going to go away, even though people argue that it, it works imperfectly and a lot of the promises of the treaty to, to Māori are not being kept mm. and there are lots of arguments and disagreements. The general idea that Māori are entitled to a distinctive participation in public life is one that's not going to go away. Well, look, it's definitely an interesting idea, as you say, if for nothing less or to make us think more about ourselves and our own identities as nations. Professor Dominic O'Sullivan from Charles Sturt University, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you very much. And on the text line, someone says, I'm a Kiwi, love living here, but Kiwis could not cope with attitudes towards and treatment of First Nations people here. Someone else, I heard you talking about this earlier and I've chatted to my NZ mates. None of them wanted it. Oh, my God, can you imagine the rugby team, though? But the turnaround, at least they would have netball team that kicks ass. That's someone there. And another person says, is this just so Australia can make legitimate claims to creating the pavlova? Hey, who knows? And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.